there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a minute before your podcast starts to talk about something very important to me. Black Lives Matter. I, Sarah Strumming, am committed to anti-racism and the companies that I oversee, the Cognitive Canine and CogDog Radio, are also committed to anti-racism. I recognize my privilege here and I recognize that I have a platform where I can use my voice and I intend to do so in such a way that combats systemic racism because it absolutely affects the field of dog training and it's time that everybody with a platform uses it for good. I'm gonna link a list of resources for ways that you can support black, indigenous, and people of color and also just some educational resources that I've found helpful in my anti-racism journey And I hope that we can all stand together to dismantle racism in dog training and therefore in the world. Cheers. Hey guys, I'm doing a new program that I'm calling Wednesday Night Chats. This is a Facebook Live that'll be happening every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on my business page, which is on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash thecognitivecanine. I hope that you'll join me over there. We're going to be talking about basically all things what to do with dogs in a pandemic. How do we prepare our dogs for when our lives go back to normal? How do we socialize puppies right now? And if we can't get out to do a decompression walk, what are we supposed to do? So join me over there. It's a free program, but I am accepting donations for it. All the details will be included each week. So that's facebook.com slash the cognitive canine Wednesday nights at 5 p.m. See you there. Hi friends, this is Tonic, part two. I'm covering Tonic, he's a border collie that I worked with, so this is a three-part case study series. If you missed part one about Tonic, you definitely wanna go check that episode out first because in that episode, I cover everything that was going on with Tonic and we dive into Tonic's behavioral wellness four steps. And you definitely need that background before diving in here. Today, we're going to go through the behavioral interventions that were taken. We're not going to talk in depth about the actual behaviors that we wanted to tackle because I covered that in episode one. So definitely, definitely, if you haven't heard that yet, go back and listen now. So tonic. He had a lot of problematic behaviors that we might classify as, you know, quote unquote, arousal based. And what's interesting about that is, is that, you know, I frequently work with dogs who are called overly aroused or who are labeled as having arousal problems. And in truth, the label arousal does not help us, does not serve us to help these dogs better. What serves us is observing their behavior, deciding which of those behaviors might be under opera control and which might not be, um, and 
diving in on helping them to change the behaviors that they can. With Tonic, I had a hunch in the very beginning, um, just kind of a gut instinct that he was acting the way that he was acting because of the close proximity of other dogs. And I had some data to back that up. He would have a lot of problematic behaviors, a lot of the same behaviors that we were seeing at camp if he was out on walks and he saw other dogs. So there's that piece, as well as just the fact that he was an intact male. And you guys, intact male dogs always have big feelings about other dogs because every single other dog is either an opponent or a mate prospect, right? So every single other dog is one of those things in an intact male's mind. There are certainly extreme versions of this. There are intact males that cannot be, you know, within a 20-foot radius of another male dog without becoming volatile. And then there's also intact males that live peacefully with other intact males, like my household. And so there's variations on that theme, but male dogs just do have an inherent kind of set of feelings that may or may not be problematic when it comes to other dogs. And so recognizing that this is a potential challenge for them in any kind of training or competitive atmosphere is really important to do. Because of that, I had Jen and Tonic go through my Barky Lungy 101 protocol, even though Tonic was not Barky Lungy. So Tonic would not, um, you know, bark and lunge or become aggressive or have displays really at other dogs he would just kind of spiral up into a place um, where he was out of his own control very quickly in the presence of other dogs. And especially that problematic handler-directed behavior that he would sometimes do, that kind of muzzle punch to the face, would come out as a result sometimes of the proximity of other dogs. So to review my Barky Lungy protocol, which you guys, if you haven't heard the Barky Lungy 101 series, again, that's another set of podcasts that you can check out from me. It is a kind of three-pronged approach. One approach is, one part is desensitization, one part is differential reinforcement of alternative behaviors, and one part is remedial socialization. We did a lot of remedial socialization for Tonic as far as we incorporated that into his new decompression walk routine and he got some nice exposure to other dogs and I continue to see really great um, pictures of him out on walks with other dogs being a social pleasant guy on social media and that makes me very happy. He was again you guys he was never dog aggressive um, so he was safe to do this with. He would just kind of lose his mind with oh my God, there's other dogs here and I can't even control myself. And so we got him around some really nice dogs that would play with him, but also some dogs that were going to tell him that his behavior was completely inappropriate. And I emphasized that I liked dogs like him to be around the latter more than the former. And it's nice for them to have playmates, but playmates that encourage bad behavior are not good. <laughs> we need playmates that encourage good behavior. So this usually winds up being bitches, um, a lot of times herding type bitches. So my two bitches, we've got an Aussie and a Border Collie, um, 
both of them have zero tolerance for any nonsense from other dogs and both of them enjoy playing with and interacting with other dogs when that dog is being appropriate. So they beautifully reinforce appropriate social behaviors while very skillfully ignoring um, sloppy social behaviors and then they will also correct egregious social behaviors. So they're just perfect both of them in very different ways and then I've got a couple of boys who do the same thing they will play and frolic and be cute but they will also ignore sloppiness and correct egregiousness I will say that the boys correct earlier um, and more often but not as effectively not as hard and you guys obviously this is all anecdotal from my own personal experiences practicing remedial socialization with a lot of dogs um these are just kind of what i observe mostly from my own group of seven who i will use for remedial socialization purposes when needed so with tonic we exposed him to or jen exposed him to because we don't live anywhere near each other some nice mostly female dogs that would play with him but also tell him when he was being stupid. And that was perfect for him. Jen also worked hard on differential reinforcement and we blended some differential reinforcement of alternative behaviors or DRA work with my worked up protocol. So let's segue for a second and then we're gonna come back. The worked up protocol goes like this. You're gonna allow the dog, and again, worked up is a class that I teach um, at the time that this airs, it will actually still be open for registration on Fenzy Dog Sports Academy, and we'll definitely link that for you in the show notes. And it's all about kind of managing and soothing those behaviors that we lump under the umbrella term of arousal. So it goes like this. You first allow the dog to perimeter sweep the environment. So I allow the dog to acclimate and move through the environment. And this is whatever environment that you're going to be working in with the dog. The next step is to test their acquisition of reinforcers, and that's a fancy way of saying, are they eating? <laughs> so you hand them a cookie, do they take it readily, do they take it really sharky, do they take it really soft, kind of get some information on where their baseline is with taking food. And then the second thing that I do is scatter food on the ground, and I observe that as well. Does the dog sniff for 365 days after they finish eating? Um, or do they pop right back up ready for more? Or do they not finish the scatter? This is all information for us. The next step is to test your marker cues. If you don't have them, like if you just say yes and give your dog a cookie, then perfect, just say yes and give your dog a cookie. But if your dog has different um, cues to take reinforcement that you can present and ask whether the dog understands those cues right now, that's what I'm after. Because if my word yes is a cue to eat food from my hand, then when you hear yes, you should move towards my hand with food in it. And if my words find it means eat one cookie off the ground, then when I say that, you should look to the ground or look to my hand to see me putting the food on the ground. And so I'm observing whether or not my dog is responding to my cues to take reinforcement. And that's important because if the dog can't respond to a simple cue to eat, 
then they certainly cannot respond to cues to do harder things. So if the dog is responding to marker cues, then I go into behavior cues. So after that, I ask the dog to sit, I mark and feed down, mark and feed, maybe spin left, mark and feed, spin right, mark and feed. And I just go through kind of their simple behavioral repertoire. I do not go into long behavior chains like healing um, or really tough behaviors or really, or behaviors that are brand new to the dog at all. I stick within kind of easyville for that. When the dog has kind of passed all of those steps, then I engage the dog in some work. So let's bounce back to that DRA work that Jen was gonna do. So she would get to an area, she'd have two stations set up. Um, so like a climb table, a Kato board, or even just two picnic benches, um, really doesn't matter. She'd have two of those set up and her helper would have their dog parked on one of the stations. And Tonic would be allowed to go through the worked up steps kind of surrounding his station. And sometimes she'd go through the worked up protocol before that other dog got there um, or before that dog was brought out. And that's another, that's a nice split. So that's a way of making the first repetitions a little bit easier. So she would go through her worked up protocol if Tonic is saying, yes, I'm here, I'm ready, she'd hop him up on the station and continue to go through cues while the other dog is going through cues on his station. They would take frequent breaks where they'd put both dogs away, move the stations a little bit closer together, come back out and continue. And if you are in Patreon, you can see videos of myself doing this. Um, they're posted under the Barky Lungy videos thread. So she'd go through this and she'd go through several iterations of this. And this is simply making sure that Tonic is in the right headspace to work and then asking him to respond to simple cues with close proximity of other dogs. And so that's kind of one version um, that she would do with the stations. And she would also use just a station for Tonic in an area where there might be other dogs just kind of passing through the area or on another side of a barrier. So she would work in the parking lot of a training facility and then maybe in the lobby of the training facility. While there weren't going to be any dogs that were allowed to barge up and ruin their session, they were always able to maintain good distance. And she always went through that worked up protocol first, which allowed her to assess and know whether Tonic was okay to continue. We always want to be making sure the dog is okay to continue. The way that we do that before we even begin is that four-step worked up process. Then the way that we continue to make sure that the dog's okay to keep pushing is their response to our cues. So that's why I have the dog doing simple cues on their station. If I start to get some increased latency so the dog is slow to respond to some of their cues, I know that I'm pushing that threshold and I know I need to take a break soon or back off so that I don't cross the threshold. She would also just, you know, she'd basically pack up that station and take it anywhere. Take it outside of maybe a barn hunt practice, take it outside of um, other classes going on. And it took a village here, she had some good friends to help her. 
One piece in my Barky Lungy protocol is desensitization. And it's important to understand that that is happening during that DRA procedure for sure. And, but I sometimes have people do what I call dog park TV, where they just go park outside of the dog park and let the dog observe. Because Jen was working on this really um, during the first height of COVID, the dog parks were pretty empty or closed. So that wasn't a huge part of their process. But because she was so proactive about finding other dog heavy types of places to do her station work in, she didn't need it. She really didn't need that part. So early on in our work together, Jen had attempted to take tonic to a barn hunt practice night. She had every intention of doing her worked up protocol, maybe some stationing outside, and he was going to be the only dog inside when it was actually his turn. He wound up giving her a nosebleed. So he wound up doing that facial punch behavior and really hurting her. And I remember watching the video and just, oh God, I can't believe it because it hurt me physically to watch. And it was very, very early in our work. And you guys, Jen is fantastic. So when she posts this video, she said, okay, here's everything I did wrong and every moment that I didn't listen to Tonic. And boy, did I pay for it with that nosebleed. I mean, she was just so honest about the fact that she had set both of them up really for failure by going to that barn hunt night. And we had discussed it and we had discussed that it might be too much. And we had discussed that it's really only okay if you're going to be paying close enough attention to his responses that you know if proceeding is a good idea or not. And, you know, we're human, right? So this happens to us. He was getting himself into quite an uproar and he punched her in the face. She had a nosebleed and she had to pack it up and go home. And you guys, it really sucks to have a dog that you love have an outburst that causes you bodily harm. And so if you're sitting in judgment of Jen right now, I just want you to maybe think of a time that you're, maybe you're a parent, and I want you to think of a time that perhaps your toddler had an outburst and threw something at you or maybe at their sibling, um, and it caused bodily harm. Probably no more severe than what Jen experienced with tonic. Um, yeah, that's a bad moment. And I think most parents' knee-jerk is, well, punish that child, that's not okay. And I'm not going to disagree with that. But I am going to say paying attention to the precursors that put the kid in that situation in the first place is more important going forward than any punishment you can dole out in that moment. So difference being with a child, you can say, hey, throwing stuff at people is really not cool. We're not going to do that again. And with a dog, ugh, we can't have that conversation. But I am gonna tell you the truth, which is that I instructed Jen to walk straight at Tonic if he had those thoughts um, or if he tried to jump at her in the future. And we got really serious about that when this happened. I said, listen, I do want you to have a response to that that isn't just ignoring it. Where was I coming from on that? Number one, he's a border collie. He understands space. I have border collies. If I walk straight into them, they move right out of my space. Um, and this is contrast with, you know, golden retrievers who, if I walk straight into them, they're like, oh, hi, you want a hug? 
Um, and so I knew that it was something that he would most likely inherently understand. And he did when she started to apply it. It's also about empowering my client. Okay. If I tell my client, well, you blew it, ignore that. Don't do it. Don't do that again. I'm not empowering my client. If I empower my client by telling her to hang the dog off the ground by his collar when he does that, because that's advice I've received before for similar behaviors. Um, now I think that I am, I'm empowering my client in a way that takes away from the success or the progress of what we're trying to work on. I always want to empower my client for what to do in moments of extreme badness that gives them a little power and control over the situation that does not harm anybody in the situation. Tonic really does not do this behavior anymore. But Jen can see it when it's kind of brewing in his head. There are some precursors, like he might um, do a little bounce. He might look at her a certain way and she will step into his space when he has those thoughts and kind of head it off. In my opinion, and I'm sure that there's going to be some positive reinforcement only based trainers or whatever who are pissed that I told her to step into his space, but um, it was effective. It was effective quickly and it gave my client a little bit of power. So I have no regrets in that area and I would make, I would give that advice again. I wanna tell you that recently, Tonic attended a similar barn hunt type of event. and was not only able to participate and find rats, but didn't punch anybody, didn't have diarrhea, didn't throw up, didn't have pie plate pupils, and was a really functional dog. And I think that that's a great story for us to end episode two on. And we are going to get such a great interview from Jen for episode three. Okay, let's have some Patreon questions. This one comes from Maria, who says, I have an 11-month-old Labrador, but it's just adorable and lovely, but also so very intense. He does everything in high speed, and he expects everyone and everything to move out of his way. Man, I... I know what you're talking about, Maria. <laughs> Sometimes things like stones and trees do not move away. And this has already resulted in a longer period of rest from an injury. He is now almost healed and we are starting to be allowed to leave him off leash, but I worry that he will injure himself again. He's now on a five meter long leash and he still manages to run like an idiot and I have no idea how to make our walks calmer. He also started chasing birds a few weeks ago, but we have trained a lot on our walks and he starts to be able to think and not only react in proximity of birds. So I'm not particularly worried about the bird chasing, but when I think about letting him off leash, I fear that it will be more like a suicide mission than decompression. We train obedience in the dog club a couple of times a week and he works for part of his food every day. He's an intense dog, but other than the walks, he is well-functioning and seems happy. He gets a lot of treats for checking in and food scatters 10 to 15 times every walk. He's now allowed to walk a bit over an hour every day in addition to our training time. Any suggestions on how to make our walks less dangerous are welcome. Maria, one of our young border collies um, is a lot like this. So I'll tell you what I have done for him. And then um, I want to remind you that 
the more decompression opportunity you can give, the less insane the dog will be on the decompression. An 11 month old Labrador that is, especially if it's field bred, which it sounds like a field type lab, um, is wanting more exercise than you can humanly provide. So an hour a day is wonderful, but probably not enough. Um, I would think about maybe once or twice a week getting out for much, much longer than that. And then my other thought is that your dog was 11 months and you just mentioned that he was injured and had to rest. And so you didn't tell me any specifics about that, which is fine. But I want to make sure that he was radiographed um, because in this age category, especially that's when we start to see um, OCD or osteochondrisis desiccans show up in both Labradors and Border Collies. And a lot of times it's missed. A lot of times it's just called a soft tissue injury. The dog is put on crate rest and NSAIDs and nothing more. It is more common than just kind of a soft tissue injury is. <laughs> so um, because puppies actually are usually pretty much made of rubber and do not get hurt super easily the way that we kind of think they will. So do make sure that the injury was properly and appropriately diagnosed, especially if it was a front limb that was lame. And then back to, you know, what do we actually do about these free trained dogs? You're already on your way with the bird issue. So you have helped him to be more thoughtful around birds. And that's exactly what I want you to do in general on the walk. So help him be more thoughtful overall. So rather than just feeding him for checking in and doing some scatters sometimes, I want him thinking all the time. Now, is that contrary to what I usually want you to do on decompression walks? Yes, it is. Usually I want you to leave them alone, let them run. But if they're truly gonna hurt themselves, you can't. So in our case, um, Watson is kind of a freight train. He has hurt himself. Um, skin injuries though. And he also had OCD as a puppy. And if Leslie weren't a rehab vet, it may not have been caught. It probably would have been called a soft tissue injury just like you went through with your Labrador. So it was caught because she knows better and she made sure and did the appropriate imaging um, and he had surgery. Because he also does run into stuff a lot. And so it would be easy to just say, oh, he hurt himself. Because, But his injuries are always superficial. They're always skin injuries. He, the bigger issue to me is that he will T-bone another dog. He will run into another dog. And that's a, of primary concern around my older girl who had a cervical disc injury. So he really cannot run into her and he will if he's not paying attention. So asking him to be more thoughtful involves, I taught him a marker cue that means I'm throwing one piece of cookie in off the trail for you. So I taught him away means look at my hand, watch me throw that cookie and he will go. So I will call to him Watson away. He will look back, he'll watch me throw the treat and then he'll go snuffle around and find it. And that's going to be twofold benefit. He is snuffling. So he is sniffing and he's um, decompressing in that way and also he's being thoughtful because he's hearing a cue that matters to him and then he's engaging his mind and then responding to that cue so that's one way that I did it I also will do honestly frequent recalls frequent collar gives frequent sit stays usually for pictures but they serve extra purposes um, I will also do pullover and scatter. Everybody pullover and scatter, which it sounds like you're doing. 
and just maintaining kind of that thoughtfulness in the dog's mind. So my, my big take homes here are continue to encourage that thoughtfulness the way that you are around the birds. And then I guess it's three takeaways, try to do more if you can. And the third is make sure that injury was appropriately diagnosed. Next one comes from Ashlyn. Ashlyn asks, my six month old Aussie, whom I got as a sports and confirmation prospect, has an issue with riding in cars. We have progressed to the point where the drooling has lessened enough to try creating him while in the car. However, we seem to be sliding backwards in progression of this comfort. He excessively drools to the point where he'll be soaked. He has had this issue since he was a puppy and it doesn't seem to be getting much better. Do you have any suggestions on how to make him more comfortable in the car slash crate? He's willing to take high value food, but will not lay down with a Kong as a distraction for the stressful event of riding in the car while moving. Ashlyn, I'm sorry you're going through that. It is one of the most frustrating things to go through and it's pretty common um, in puppies. So what you're talking about is not today about stress, it's about nausea. So the car is making your puppy highly nauseated. And if we do not address the nausea itself, we produce an anxiety response because the dog knows they will become nauseated in the car and therefore becomes anxious about being made to be in the car. So I'm not going to go into crate versus no crate. I think you need to start wherever the dog is most comfortable. But this is a question for your veterinarian and do not take over-the-counter stuff as good enough because it isn't good enough for your situation. So the best thing to do here is actually to hit the dog with your heavy hitter anti-nausea meds. So prescription anti-nausea pills um, from your veterinarian are what you need to be doing for all car rides. Okay. And then in the meantime, you can do, we eat dinner in the crate. We do some train, or I'm sorry, in the car. We do some training in the car. We have a fun game in the car. We do really fun things in the car. And when you have to get in the car, I will give you an anti-nausea medication so that that's not your experience. Um, if the dog is already showing avoidance, anxiety as far as shaking or um, excessive panting with the drooling or vocalizing, then I would also be talking to the vet about anti-anxiety medication. Some vets are gonna be amenable to this stuff and some vets aren't. Find one that will be because that is the right way to take care of this, is to take care of it from a pharmaceutical place rather than um, a behavior modification place. And then when the pharmaceuticals are on board and the dog is not experiencing nausea um, and, is, and has its anxiety at least a little bit controlled, then you can start to just do fun things in the car, drive short, um, distances and then do fun things and have the car start to predict good events for the dog. Good luck with that, Ashlyn. Okay, next one is from Emily. Emily writes, I've heard the recommendation to attach a bear bell or something similar to collars and or harnesses to warn wildlife and decrease chances for stumbling upon wildlife during decompression walks. Yes, I do this. Um, my dogs are very hunty and we have done a lot of work on trail skills and recalls so they can still get decompression time off leash. But I like the idea of the bell being added. Well, first of all, good for you, Emily, for doing all that training. She continues, my concern is whether or not the noise of the bell will be averse to the dog wearing it. 
Can you speak a bit as to your thoughts or experiences with this? Do you feel the annoying or possibly aversive sound of the ringing bell poses an issue? And do you feel like it potentially affects some dog's ability to decompress during walks? Here's the thing, Emily. It might. So if the dog is less likely to run as much as they were, less likely to move as much as they were, or maybe even just frozen in place afraid then definitely don't use the bell. If you see changes in the dog's behavior, then the bell is having an effect on them that's not good. I will say I have only had one client dog be extremely afraid of the bell, one. And that's obviously hundreds upon hundreds of client dogs that I've told to use the bell. In my personal dogs, I even have dogs that I would classify as noise phobic who can wear the bell just fine and are fine. So um, give it a try. Observe your dog's behavior, respond appropriately. And that'll be it for this week. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.